Good morning. How's everyone doing today? You guys are rowdy over here. I'm so glad you're, you're friends and we have friends here. It's awesome. I love it. Love hearing you guys connect and find community here at Hill City. My name is Nicole Eunice. I'm part of the team here and I'm really excited to get to bring our message today. We're in a series called Stories Jesus Told. So if you haven't been with us, basically this whole summer, we've been recounting and thinking about the stories that Jesus told to illustrate spiritual truths. And one of the difficulties of this format, right? Like a stage and a pastor and like some sense that I have something special to bring to you guys is that the real like idea behind these parables would be like around the fireside, around the table, like the kind of thing that you argue about when you're sitting together like watching TV, they create tension. They're meant to be like thought about and wrestled through. They're not meant to be like a sitcom. Like why, I think you guys might, I don't know if you saw this, like during the pandemic, there was this article about how many people, like one of the, one of the self-care things to do during the pandemic was to like watch a sitcom that you've already watched before. Anybody go all the way back to like The Office, Friends, again and again? And they were saying, like in the article, they were saying it's because it feels comfortable. Like when we already know how something's gonna resolve and we're living in really uncertain times, we just like the feeling of a 21 minute episode that we already know how it resolves and it always resolves. But here's the reality about life. (laughs) Life doesn't always resolve quite like that. And Jesus is a master storyteller who invites us into conflict and tension that represents what it actually is like to be a human being. And he doesn't resolve the tension in a 21 minute sitcom. He invites us into it more deeply so that we can find and experience the true nature of God within. So I know that's a deep thought, but I just wanna, I don't know if that's just a disclaimer. Both Matt and I are like, we just wish we could have story time around the fire with this one. But I just wanna continue sort of in our theme of sharing some of these thoughts that I think these parables invite us into. So we're in part two of the prodigal son today. So if you missed last week, Matt kind of brought us through part one, and I'm going to take part two today. So you can go back and watch that on YouTube if you'd like or listen to the podcast. Um, But I'm going to do a little tiny recap to get us into where we are today. So just as a reminder, um, what we talked about this whole series is that parables invite us to see things we'd rather keep hidden. That's the spirit of parables. And if I was gonna name this message today, I might say this is a message for church people. So you're in luck because you're all church people. You're all here and this is an uncomfortable message today for church people. Just a recount of the parable of the prodigal son. This is a story that is so well known and told in our world. It's something that sort of transcends time and space. People talk about it all the time. If you're with someone who's not a believer, who doesn't even know much about Christianity, they've heard the term prodigal. They know that concept because it's, it's so powerful, this story, that it goes out into the world and into popular culture. It's captured in art. This is a Rembrandt. This is Clive Upton. This is some other guy, and I couldn't find his name, but maybe someone who was an art history major can tell me. This is everywhere. You can find pictures of the prodigal son captured in movies, in stories, in art. It's everywhere. It's something about it that pulls us in. And the thing about the parable of the prodigal son is that we talked about part one last week. And if we just had the prodigal son end in part one, it would be a wonderful and beautiful story about the father's love. But the story does not end. The story goes on. I'm going to read us the whole thing, and then we're going to focus in on the second half. So here's the story. I'm going to term this the tale of two lost sons. 
Jesus tells a story. There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Remember, the idea that a younger son who would have no rights to property would go to his father and say, give me my inheritance was like saying to the father, you're dead to me and I don't want any part of you. Okay, so that's where we start the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Again, tiny little piece here. This would be a shocking story to the audience because there would be nothing lower you could do as a good Jewish boy than be around pigs. That was like the most unclean animal possible. Everything about the idea that you would be in a pig pen would be the worst of the worst of the worst. I don't know what you think the worst job in the world is, but um, I think I do know at one point in my brother's life, my youngest brother, he worked in an incinerator that took care of like animal waste and trash. If you could think of a job, ooh, see, I know you guys are like, ew, guys, what if he watches this? He'll hear you. No, he's in a much better place now. But the point is, that's the kind of feeling that this would give the audience. They're like, oh gosh, that's where he got? He said, you're dead to me. He left the family. He spent all his money. And then he finds himself feeding pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. That's like saying he longed to eat the trash but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out, remember we talked about this last week, he's now gonna create a framework for how he can get out of his guilt. He's gonna make a plan for how he can work himself back into his family. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The younger son started his speech that he had prepared, but he was interrupted. Because the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Those actions were not just about clothing him. Those actions were symbolic of being welcomed back into the family. You would have the signet ring of the family put on your hand. You'd have the robe of the family. So this wasn't just about taking care of his physical needs. It was actually a restoration of relationship right before the younger son could even get through his speech. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Wouldn't that be great if that was the story? But the story continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. I don't know what's precious in your home. I don't know if it's when like your parents make steak 
or someone gets out like the really good whiskey, but the idea of a fattened calf would be like a once in a lifetime kind of situation. It's like we don't kill, we don't kill fattened calves all the time. This is a very, very, very special occasion. This is the Dom Perignon or whatever that thing is. I don't know if it's cheeseburgers, whatever it is in your family is that thing. And that's what's happening inside. He's killed the fattened calf because he's back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's the end of the story. It is not a sitcom that resolves. We do not get to know what happens with the elder son next. Perhaps you wonder, what happened next? What happens in the next moment? What happens in the next week? What happens in the next year? And if you truly will engage the story, if you can come with me and put aside your daily life for a moment and be here in the room for a second and ask the question, what does this make you think of? Because for good church people, this will assault you. (laughs) This will make you think, hey, wait a second. But what's gonna happen now? But what about the elder brother's inheritance? But what about justice? Yeah? It makes us have to confront our own reality, our own self in a way that actually is much more deceptive than the younger son's way of rebelling. Let's take a look again at these pictures. Here's the elder son in this first piece of art. Do you notice how the father has kneeled to the level of the younger son, but the elder son stands over? Check out this guy. I mean, he's, look at his fist. I mean, he's like kind of, he looks kind of embarrassed, but also really mad, right? He's like, I feel like I need to participate, but I am not getting off this rock. Look at this, I mean, this one is like, I mean, this, look at this one. I mean, over the shoulder, just a death stare, just going at him. I mean, just murderous intent coming at this one. I love looking closely at these and thinking, oh yeah. These artists wanted to capture this part of the story. And here's what I want you guys to know as we explore a few things about the elder son. What I want you to know is that the story of the younger son and the elder son is the story of us. It's the story of two false selves. It's the two directions that we can go where we actually want to sort of name and and make our own destiny. And one of the ways we do that is to rebel outwardly. And one of the ways we do that is to rebel inwardly. But neither one of those actually represents the heart of the father. Many of us understand that the lost son is a lost son. But what we need to understand is that the elder son is also a lost son. There are three parts, I think, that we can pull out here about what is happening with the elder son. The lost son, the young son, teaches us what's bad when it's bad. The elder son teaches us what's bad when it's good. Here we go, first part. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. 
I think the first thing that this moment in the elder sons represents in his life is a crisis of belonging. A crisis of belonging is about, am I loved and do I have status? Because nobody went and got him when the younger son came home. Nobody said to the brother, hey, 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 something's happening. Your dad's running. That's weird. That's embarrassing. Why is your dad running toward the end of the property? Nobody stopped what they were doing to help out the elder son. And so he only finds out about the party from the outside. He's already out there doing the thing. He's doing the work when he finds out. And I just think that gives us this moment. He's like going about his business. He's doing his work. No one consulted him. No one invited him in long before Freud talked about the ego or Adler talked about birth order. Jesus captures the magnificence of what it feels like to be the elder, dutiful son. What is it like to be the one who's always doing good? And what happens when we're the ones doing good and we hear from the outside a celebration that we were not invited to? Second crisis I think we see is a crisis of envy. Do I get enough? Do I get rewarded for the good that I do? The older son, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Do you remember the last time the father left the household? The father went out to meet the younger son. It was as embarrassing, actually, what's happening right here as what happened with the younger son. The fact that the older brother would not come to the party was not just about how he felt about the younger brother, it's also about how he felt about the father. He's basically disrespecting his father's way and in, in, in exactly as the father was with the younger, he does with the elder. He leaves the party. He comes out to be with him. He embarrasses himself to come and try to help him see what's really happening. But I think this crisis of envy, will I have enough? Will I be rewarded? Will I be celebrated? Will I be known? Will I be seen? Here I am doing all of these good things, but for what? Why am I doing all of these good things? He said to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Remember, this moment in the elder son's life didn't just happen right now. All that's happened now is that a crisis, a circumstance, an experience has revealed what he's been thinking all along. This is the tension for church people. Because what happens here is that this elder brother who thought for sure, I am doing good and I am doing good for you in a moment of crisis, in a moment of stress, in a moment when things are not going as he expected them to go, he reveals his true heart. You know, I think sometimes we think, oh man, like, man, you saw me at my worst. I'm like, what is your worst is actually who you are. Like, your best and your worst are both you. You're, you're not like something else when you're at your worst. You're who you actually are. And I think for the elder son, we just get this moment where the curtain gets pulled back. Just like the curtain got pulled back on the younger son when he was rehearsing what he was gonna do to come back to the father. When he's in the pig pen and he's like, this is bad. This is as bad as it gets. I'm gonna practice what I could say to my dad because it, it would be better to be a servant with my dad. 
And he only did that because he came to the end of his rope. We all know that, right? Like scarcity came to him. It's not like he all of a sudden was like, oh, I feel guilty. Here I am in the brothel at a feast and I just feel vaguely guilty. No, like it was as bad as it gets. And there was no other way to continue for the younger son. He was lost and he knew he was lost. But for the elder son, what's worse is that he doesn't know that he's lost. And it's the moment of the crisis that actually reveals the operating system that he is functioning in. And we see it right here. It's this crisis of righteousness. It's I am entitled to reward because of my goodness. God, you owe me because of what I've done. And he says, listen, all these years I've been slaving for you. So there's, there's crisis one. Oh, just think of you're the father. Oh, okay, so this is, a, this is a slave relationship? The younger son is willing to become a slave just to get back into the father's household. The older son's already been acting like a slave the whole time. And he doesn't even know it. I've been a slave for you out here working and you wouldn't even give me a young goat so I could celebrate. And then he removes himself from the family. He says, this son of yours, ever do, do that as a parent? One of your kids messes up and, he's, and you're like, hey, you need to talk to your son. You know you have, you know you have. You're like, have you spoken with your daughter about her room, you know? It's this way, right, that we remove ourselves from ownership. And the, the older brother's like, that's not my brother. That's your son. I won't even claim him as in my family. The father pleads with him and he responds, this son of yours. He refuses the family. He rejects obedience. He rejects honor. And this son is lost three times over. The elder son is lost to his father in this moment. The elder son is lost to his brother and what that relationship could look like in this moment. And what's more than that, he's lost to the celebrating community. He's lost to the best party that's ever happened in the town that's happening a few steps away from him. He's mad, he's entitled to be mad, and the anger and envy and self-righteousness keep him from going to the party of a lifetime. No one is more lost than the one who doesn't know they're lost. There is nothing sadder in our lives as church people than when we lose the feeling of being lost. And this is a particular good people problem. And this is why good people struggle with this parable. And they really struggle with this part. And I would encourage you to struggle with it. I would encourage you to wrestle with it because when you wrestle with it, you actually reveal your theology. As soon as you're honest enough to say why you don't like this story, you're starting to get a handle on your actual theology. Here's some things that I've been wrestling with this week as I've thought about this parable. Where is justice, right? Why didn't the elder son get celebrated earlier than this? What's gonna happen next? Is the father ever gonna tell him that he shouldn't have done that? You start to work through that and you will hear your theology. You'll understand how you actually see God. I mentioned to Adler a moment ago, the elder son. Adler is the first psychologist who studied birth order. And this was just, you know, a couple of generations ago. And this is what he says about the oldest in birth order. Typically responsible and conscientious, they are more likely to, mirror, to mirror their parents' beliefs and they choose to spend time with adults. 
Because they're more likely to have authority over younger siblings, they take on the role of surrogate parent. They have a tendency to be bossy and want things to be done their own way. They tend to be perfectionists and worriers, and they put pressure on themselves to succeed. We are all the older brother. We all have tendencies. The question is not if, it is when and how. Once you become a church person, this becomes a unique problem of church people. Because what we do is we start doing good. And we start being good. And along the way, we may develop a sense that this is the operating system of what it means to follow God. And this is what I've been taught about what it means to be a good person. And the reality is, there's like a way to derail in life. And one way to derail is into the pig pen of the younger son. And the other way to derail is into the pig pen of the elder son. And the pig pen of the elder son is the one who says, I refuse to celebrate because that's not the way that I expected it to go. And I refuse to celebrate because I'm not being elevated the way I see that happening. And that whole mindset, that whole mindset is this tendency to say, I'm going to order the way life should be. And I'm going to create a theology. Like, I'm going to create a Jesus in my image based on what I understand about the world. Because honestly, that's easier. It's easier than trying to live in this world and figure out, how do I take a different journey? It just feels easier. This morning, I went to the Starbucks on Broad Street, and I was walking in, and as I was walking in, a man who I would presume to be homeless was walking by, just head down, walking slowly, dragging a suitcase. Is it easier to just decide that he's made mistakes that's put him there? Or is it easier to actually look him in the face and like, I really like almost started crying? Just because our world is broken and suffers. And you see the elder son tendency, the church people tendency, the good person tendency, is I'm gonna order a life that helps me know why things are the way that they are. And that is just the same. That's a different kind of lost, but it's still lost. Because ordering a life like that means that I don't actually need the father. I don't need the father. I, I need the father's things, but I don't need the father's heart. Like I, I want what God has to offer, but I don't actually like need God. And that is the way that we get lost. That's how good people get lost, is because they want what the Father has to offer. They don't want the Father's things. So let's talk for a minute. I'm only gonna answer one of those many questions that you could have, okay? And this is the first one I wanna answer, okay? And it's about sin. So here's one of the things that I think that people struggle with. They're like, but isn't it like, isn't it better to be, like the lost son gets to go have fun. Isn't it better, like, I'm a good person, and then secretly inside, we're like, but you're having fun. So we see that with the elder brother, right? Because the elder brother's like, I've been slaving for you. I did all the good things. Why couldn't I have a party? Meanwhile, my brother goes off and squanders all your money in parties, and I don't even get to have one party, right? So there's this part, there's this tendency in our heart to say, but isn't it more fun to sin? Like, everyone's out there having fun, and I'm trying to be a good person, and I just want to try to just address that really briefly, because that really reveals a ton. That reveals a ton about our theology. We may believe that the younger son got away with it, that sin is fun. Maybe that kind of sin seems fun, 
because we're so busy sinning in our self-righteousness and duty that we actually don't realize how terrible sin really is. So let me talk about some ways that the sin works in our lives, whether it's in the pig pen of the younger son or the pig pen of the elder son, this is the truth of sin. The first thing is that sin devours. Sin always needs more. The false self is never satisfied. We see this in the younger, we see this in the elder. It's never satisfied. The false self is never at home in its own ways of finding life. Think about this, if the false self worked, every rich, famous, successful, attractive, athletic person would be the happiest on the planet. If what we think we're after actually worked, those people would be happy. Newsflash, those people are not happy. You don't have to go very far and you don't have to read very much to know that to be true. The second thing that sin does is sin tears down. The false self has to tear down other things in order to hold on to its status. The false self is essentially competitive. It's always saying, you can't be elevated because that brings me down. I've got to tear you down so that I can feel better about myself. That's what sin does. And this is a progressive problem. So what feels good in the moment starts to devour us. What feels like it's going to work actually starts tearing us down. What felt great in that moment of pleasure becomes a very long tail of pain because sin ultimately tears down. Sin enslaves, again, over time. What happens in a moment when I say, I'm gonna reach for this thing, I'm gonna do this thing, I'm gonna find pleasure in this thing that's outside of God's design, what happens over time is that thing demands more and more. It devours what's good and it leaves us needing more and then it desires for tearing down of us and then we have to do more of it for it to satisfy. So ultimately, when we think about what sin is, it is devouring, it is destructive, and it's enslaving. And that's why Jesus didn't say in his public ministry, I came here so that you good people can have a ticket to heaven. He said, I came here to release the prisoner, to set the captive free. And if we understand what sin actually does, I think a lot of us think that somehow sin is this moral code that makes God feel good about himself. Like God just gonna put rules on our life and these rules are gonna be good for God. And we lose track of the fact that actually God's design is good for us. Like the whole point about the problem of sin is that the problem of sin ultimately leads to these places. The whole point of the problem of sin is not God trying to power up over you to see if you have the willpower to, to avoid things that you might be tempted to do. The whole point is that the Father's heart is so for you that he has designed a way to live into the truest part of ourselves. And with the younger son, it's really obvious, right? There's like consequences for that kind of sin. But with the elder son, it hides, it's devious. I love this, oops, that Jesus says. Am I here, am I here with you? <laughs> Hold on. There we go. This is how Jesus describes it. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
And the reason I like this is because what he's saying is until you really know, until it's tested, until you open it up, you don't really know what kind of fruit is in there. Anyone ever been really like devastated by an avocado? You know, you're like, avocado, you were just, you were unripe yesterday. Today is your day, avocado. And then you open it and it's rotten on the inside. You ever had that? And, and what's happening here with the elder son is he's just being opened up and we're seeing what's actually on the inside. That's why this is ultimately a good story. This story is ultimately good news because the crisis created an opportunity for the elder son to actually know what he was really feeling and thinking. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's what crisis and stress and circumstance do in our life too. When things don't go your way, when you feel like you're suffering, when you experience injustice, when God doesn't come through the way that you expect, that's a chance to see what kind of fruit's on the inside. And the best news of all is that the father's approach to the elder son is the same as his approach to the younger son. He's like, I'm here for you. I'm out here coming for you. I will plead with you. You are part of me. The father comes out and here's his response. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. There's a false self that finds pleasure in sin as we know it, right? There's also a false self that finds pleasure in duty, in being good, in being right, in doing things right. But both of those false selves have a massive problem. And that massive problem is that they want the father's things and not the father's heart. Just like I said before, they want the father's things. They don't want the father's heart. And the good news about our God is he goes out to the elder son, he goes out to the younger son. And in both cases, he says, you're with me and everything I have is yours. This is the good news of who our father in heaven is, is wherever you find yourself lost, he's constantly coming to you. And he's not coming to you with his things. He's coming to you with his heart. I think this might be the thing that we've lost more than any other in sort of evangelical Christianity is that Jesus shows us a completely different way. Because you know, there's not two sons in this parable, there's three sons. The third son in this parable is Jesus. Jesus is the one who tells the story. Jesus is the one who understands the idea of a son and a father. He's the one who models for us what a true relationship with the Father in heaven looks like. And he tells a story that illustrates how he knows God. And then he makes a way for us to also know God. So many people talk about our Christianity like it's about a, a, a belief code and a set of behaviors and about eternity. But do you know that knowing Jesus is about the fact that we have access to actually know God? Like have you ever woken up in the morning and been like, I'm a person who knows God. Like the creator of the universe the one who holds all wisdom, who understands time, who understands me, who knows my circumstances. I get to know God. Like, what if you woke up and you were like, today's a day that I know God. I mean, that would be the most important thing that anyone could ever know about you, would be the fact that you know God. Yet for so many of us who are good Christian people, we think that knowing God means I've got to live a certain way so that all y'all know that I know God instead of actually being like, do I know God? I was reading in the color purple this week and I just, there's this one line in the book 
The author of that book, by the way, said the whole book is about God and everyone loses the fact that the book's about God. There's just this one little line though in a dialogue and one of the characters says to the other, hey, you don't go to church to get God. You go to church to share God. And I thought like, yeah, if we find, if we find the way if we don't derail into our false self, which we're constantly doing, but we find our way back to God, we're able to say, I am lost. I actually am lost. I'm lost in this relationship. I'm lost in this circumstance. God, I'm lost. And you're the one who finds me. You're the one who finds me over and over again. You're the one who will go out to me when I'm in the furthest pig pen and I finally come to my senses and I try to come back. But you also go out to me when I don't even know I'm lost. That the Father in heaven is pleading with us to come to his heart, not to come for his things. The gospel says that we get God so that we can know him. That Jesus made a way for us to know God. I love this. This I know, that God is for me. What if that was like the main thing that people knew about you? <laughs> You're like, this I know, like I know that I know. This I know that God is for me. Look at how Jesus describes his whole purpose. He's praying as he goes to the cross and he says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you. Eternal life is not just heaven. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is that they can know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The third son in this parable is Jesus and he actually models and shows us a way to the Father. It's incredible, it's a gift, it's amazing. We get to be known. We get to be known in our lostness, we get to be known in the places that we get hung up. We get to be known. This can feel like such an impossible thing and it should, that's the point. If this creates tension in you, it should. That's the point. Only those of us who know how deeply lost we are can hear this sermon and say, amen. And we're ready to sing. I'm ready to take communion. A lot of us will feel like, ooh, am I lost? I thought I already got found. Haven't we already done this, God? Isn't this really now about what you're doing for me and what I'm doing for you? And God's like, no, this is about me knowing you and you knowing me and the invitation and the journey that we have into that. This is the third way, and the third way is supposed to feel impossible. We're supposed to be asking the question, how do I get beyond my envy? How do I get beyond my guilt? How do I get beyond my anger, my insecurity, my comparisons? How do I get beyond that, God? I'm lost, exactly. It's a beautiful place to be, but we have to wrestle to get there with our sin, with our self-righteousness, with what we want from God, except instead of wanting God. G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The question is, will we try it? Will we take the hero's journey? The hero's journey is the journey into our true self, into the place that says, man, I am lost. Can I be found? God, this does feel impossible. I don't know how to deal with that younger brother in my life. I don't know how to deal with that elder brother in my life. God, this feels impossible. And God says, exactly. And he comes to us and he says, everything I have is yours. This is the intent, the position, the posture of our Father in heaven. 
is that he's constantly inviting us in. And that is the good news. That is the gospel. I'm gonna invite Natalie up. Um, Natalie, who was leading worship this morning as part of the team here at Hill City. And as we were preparing for this sermon series, I said, hey, would you wanna write a song about this parable? And like, she picked a piece and she wrote something for us. And what we're gonna do, instead of our two minutes to reflect where we're quiet, we're actually gonna get to reflect by listening to Natalie share a little bit of her story and her journey um, through this parable, because that's what it invites.